some truth can be sung and conveyed far better than it can be said. Thank you, Abigail. As we described with the kids, this story is one of those. That, that we left Jesus and his disciples at the end of chapter 10, going, leaving Jerusalem back across the Jordan to a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, there's going to be a Bethany that pops up in this story. It's another location. That's a village actually on the Mount of Olives, just a couple of miles, not even two miles from Jerusalem. So you could call chapter 11 of John's gospel from Bethany to Bethany. But that Bethany beyond the Jordan where John had first been baptizing there's going to, is, is going to be a scene of a whole new consecration, a whole new commitment as we enter into the story. So there's where they are, and the story begins in, in John chapter 11, verse 1. A certain man is ill, Lazarus. And I've introduced you, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha, you know about, though we haven't come to their story yet. It's actually next week in chapter 12. But John says this is that Mary and Martha, the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Their brother Lazarus was ill. And so they sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And this is not just he's sick, you know, he's got a fever. He's just not feeling well today. He's not going to be at temple today. No, this is, this is the kind of, of he's ill where the friends are coming and visiting. And when they come and visit and they go in and they see him and they step back out of the room and they're kind of hanging around with each other. Oh, he doesn't look very good, does he? I don't know if he's going to make it. I'm talking among themselves in real low tones because it doesn't look like Lazarus is going to make it. It's that kind of ill. And when they send that word to Jesus, they are not informing him. They are telling him, Lord, we need you to come. Lord, this is serious. This is an emergency. It's that kind of ill. And so Jesus, first of all, he dials down the situation a little bit. There, with the messenger, maybe, maybe the messenger is frantic at that point about how serious this illness is. And Jesus dials it back a little bit. He pulls in the panic. He says, this is not an opportunity for death. He says, this illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, God's truth does give perspective in the midst of panic. That's true. We need God's truth in order that we can trust God's purposes. And Jesus says, Jesus is not saying here that Lazarus isn't going to die. That's not what he's saying. He could have said, go your way, told the messenger, go, Lazarus is, is healed, or Lazarus is going to rise up, Lazarus is going to be fine. He could have told him that. He's done that before. He doesn't do that here. He says this, th this illness does not lead to death. It leads to something greater. It leads to something else. But he's not saying that Lazarus isn't going to die. In fact, as we read the story, and you've heard it before, Lazarus does die. Rather, he's saying this is not an opportunity for death. Death does not win here. God's glory is going to be displayed in a way that you don't expect. God uses trouble for glory. And yet, we're somewhat troubled by that. The idea that God uses trouble for glory seems to say at one level that God uses us for his good. That we're almost like those 
expendable crewmen on Star Trek. You know, there's a couple of extras that always beam down with uh, Captain Kirk and Spock and so on, and something bad happens to them, not to the main guys, right? Sometimes you feel like that, that God's being glorified, his purposes are, are, are advancing, and yet my circumstances are a mess. My dreams have been shattered here. And yet, that's not what Jesus is saying either. God is not going to use Lazarus in order to glorify himself. Any more than God used the blind man. When the, when the disciples asked, they said, Who's, who, who caused this man to be born blind? Was it his parents? Was it his own sin? Their concern is, who do we point the fingers at? As long as we know who to blame, we're halfway there, right? But, but Jesus says, no, this is for the glory of God. Jesus doesn't point back to the cause. Jesus points ahead to what God's going to do in the midst of it. And that's what he's going to do with Lazarus here. That Jesus changed that blind man's life. Jesus gives him a new life. And it's only because of the change that Jesus works. It's only because of the way he lifts, the glory he gives to the blind man, that any glory goes to Jesus in the process. It's only because of what he does for Lazarus. Lazarus could have been sick, and Lazarus gets better, and not much more is said about it, you know, as the world turns there in the days of Jerusalem. And you and I would have never heard of Lazarus. Jesus gives Lazarus a whole new platform. Jesus gives, gives Lazarus, he ramps up his story in a big way. That Lazarus has got such a story now to tell. Everybody knows Lazarus. And, and this guy apparently can't shut up. And it's gotten so bad that, that the, the Pharisees, they're going to decide, you know, not only are they going to have to get rid of Jesus, they're probably going to have to get rid of Lazarus too. His story is that effective. And God gave him that story in giving him new life. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but again, again, Jesus only gets any credit in the story because he lifts Lazarus. That's the point I want you to make. Even you think about the story of Job, it seems like, why did God do all that stuff to Job just so that he, he could teach us these things? That's not the point. God didn't do those things to Job. Yeah, but God allowed it, right? Think of it this way. God says to Satan, you go ahead, you do your worst, because that's what he does. God says, you do your worst, and I'll do my best. And we'll see how it all works out. And God takes the very things that the enemy would use to destroy us. God takes those things, and he twists them, he turns them, and he uses them for a far greater glory for us. And in that glory for us, that's where God ends up getting glory. He gets glory as the lifter of our heads, as the psalmist says. That in lifting us, others see he is a God who lifts up. He is a God who raises. He is a God who helps. He is a God who strengthens. He is a God who empowers. Rather than simply credit or achievements going to God himself. So Jesus said, this is not the opportunity for death. Death does not win here. Trust God's purposes in the midst of trouble, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of, of seeming loss. Trust God's purposes. Death does not win here. Jesus loved them. And notice the story goes on. In verse 5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and his sister Lazarus and Mary. So, sorry, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Keep the players straight. 
So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. That's the part that Evan had so much trouble with, right? He loved them, and so he stayed. He loved them, and so he doesn't go. And what happens in his not going? In his not going, if you follow the timeline of the story, in Jesus' not going, Lazarus dies. He loved them, and so he lets Lazarus die. He loved them, and so he doesn't show up. And that's where many of you are caught between as well. You know God loves you because the book tells you so. You know God loves you because the cross shows you so, and that's why it doesn't make any sense if God loves me or since he loves me, why in this did he not show up? That's where we're stuck, right? We live there. Sooner or later, you'll be there too. This is the experience of our mortality. Loss does come. Grief will find you. You will call upon him. And he will answer you. And yet it might not be according to our purposes. It might not be according to our timetable. In the midst of the trouble, we can trust God's purposes. They could be asking themselves, where is Jesus? Because he's waited two days. He hasn't come. He has delayed because there are times when love waits. Certainly within the first year of dating Julie, I knew this was a gr the girl I wanted to marry. We did not marry in that first year, nor the second, or even by the third. It was three and a half years before we were married. I needed to be ready. Julie needed to be ready. And Julie's father also needed to be ready. <laughs> there were things that had to happen, right? But she was worth waiting for. And it was better that we waited. If I could tell young girls in the room today one thing, it would be this. Look for a young man who understands that you're worth waiting for. Okay? Enough said. He wants to rush. He wants to push you. No, no, no. He must not be the one. Because you need to look for one who knows that you are worth waiting for. Some things are worth waiting for. We're going to see in the story this was as well. Parents, let me give you one more example. Cell phones. Your child doesn't need a cell phone by the time they are 9 or 10. I'm sorry, they really don't. You're thinking, what? But they need a phone. All the kids have phones. If, if all the other kids have phones and they don't have a smartphone by the time they're 10, then, then what are the other kids going to say? When was good parenting ever defined by what the other kids say? Right? It'll be better to wait. You know, wait till they're, I don't know, 30? Probably would be fine. There's a rumor out there, they're using actually to sell more smartphones, that the flip phones are not going to be, be usable, I think, after July 5th. So everybody was pushed, even some of those old dinosaurs who were holding on to, smart, uh, to flip phones had to give it up. That's not going to work. It's not true. You, could st you can still use a flip form, and some of us should. Anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about phones. Some things are worth waiting for, and kids and phones is definitely one of those. Where was I going? Well, where are the disciples going? Let's check in with them. So there they are, waiting two days, and then after two days, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said, what? Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. And Jesus already told them, I am the light of the world. What he's saying is, this is me, guys. In God's purposes, there is safety. There is no danger. It's not unsafe to be walking in God's will in the presence of the Lord. He says, my sheep, I have them in my own hand, and no one is able to snatch them out of there. My Father is greater than me, gave them to me, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. There's no place safer than right in the midst of the hands of God. I described to you before that I'm not crazy about my daughter and her family living in Harare, Zimbabwe, but I remember well that when she did her first one-year stint there in Harare, nobody shot at her the whole time she was there. She had to come back here to Vancouver and then take a trip over to Clackamas Mall, and there she got caught up in a mall shooting. And she said, people are telling me Zimbabwe is unsafe, Dad, but nobody shoots at me in Zimbabwe. So maybe all of you need to move over to Harare, Zimbabwe instead. The point is, there's no place safer to be than right in the middle of where the Lord would direct you. That works for Tasha going to Indonesia. And you don't know what you're going to find there. You don't know what you're going to expect. You don't know what it will all be like. And yet, when the Lord leads you there, he will provide for you there. He will care for you. There's no place else you should be than right in the middle of his will. Walking with him in the light. Once you were in darkness, and you could stumble, you could fall. It is unsafe. The unsafe place is to not be walking in the will of of God. To not be walking in the light of the Lord. Once you were in darkness, now you are light of the Lord. Walk then as children of light. In his will, according to his way. That's where our best blessing and safety is. It is safe to go back there. The disciples are concerned, and so Jesus said, our our friend Lazarus is asleep, and we must go and wake him. And they said, come on, Lord, if he's asleep, let's just, you know, he'll wake up. He'll be fine, right? Stay here where it's safe and comfortable. And the Lord tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died. He says, and we must go to him. You know what they hear in that? What do you hear in that? You probably hear, Lazarus has died, so we must go to him because we need to raise him. The only reason you hear that is because that's how the story ends, and you heard the story before. The disciples at the time, they say, Lazarus has died. They wanted to to kill Jesus there. Lazarus has died, and Jesus says, we must go to him, and he now is dead. Jesus seems to be saying, we must go and die with him. And so what does Thomas then say? Doubting Thomas who we sometimes accuse of being faithless, Thomas. Thomas is the one who says, and I love this line, let us go and die with him. Thomas in verse 16, Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's commitment. Here they are in the land of Bethany beyond the Jordan, the land of baptism, the land where, and what baptism is, is we are saying, I believe in Jesus. I take my stand here on my faith in Christ. I believe in him. I belong to him. I will follow him. I, will be, I am raised in Christ to walk in newness of life, and I'm taking next steps. That's what we're saying in baptism. And in this land of baptism, of John the Baptist and Bethany beyond the Jordan, Thomas is the one and he stands up with another statement of consecration. I'll go with him. I'll follow him into death if that's where he leads me to go. 
And there's something about the Christian life there. There's something Thomas is saying that is certainly faithful, it's certainly loyal, but it's also probably, this is one of the first times in the story where somebody's saying something they don't fully understand, kind of like preaching. Where, where Thomas is saying, let's go and die with him. That's the way Jesus described the Christian life. If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. Die to self, live for him. That's the essence of the Christian life. Give, let us go with him. Let us follow after him, giving ourselves away for the sake of others. That's how Jesus will describe the, the Christian life. And Thomas says it without knowing quite fully what he's saying yet. That's going to happen a couple more times in the story as we go. But we'll rush along. So first of all, when in the midst of our wondering, Jesus, where are you? We can trust God's purposes. In the midst of our trouble, we can trust God's purposes. In the midst of our trouble, or in the midst of troubles, generally other people's troubles, we can also share in grief as well as glory. We want glory. We, we, we want to avoid grief if we can. We're told to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we're told what else? To come near, to come alongside, to come close and to grieve with those who grieve. There will be joy. There will be grief. And we don't have to hide from the one in order to celebrate the other. We don't have to hide our grief behind our theology as if we were denying it. A confident trust in God and his purposes is able to embrace grief. Look at verse 17 and forward. When Jesus came from Bethany to Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the womb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem about, in the womb, did I say? Tomb, tomb, tomb. <sighs> See what I said about pastors not knowing what they're saying. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, just over the top of the Mount of Olives. And when the Jews had come to Martha and Mary from Jerusalem to console them concerning their brother. So Martha heard that Jesus was coming. He's like coming with the other mourners. When they heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There comes a time when our dreams have not been realized. There comes a time when our prayers have not been heard. There comes a time when our dreams seem shattered around us. And we're almost done with asking God. We're now at the point of telling God, if you had, but you didn't. I don't know if that's what's going on here, but the language pulls that out of me. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She seems to express more faith in the midst of it. She says, and yet, even now, I'm looking for my place again. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She has faith. She trusts him. She has no idea, again, what exactly she's saying. She doesn't know how true this really is. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Today, in fact. 
keep that under the table for now. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. There's some of that hiding our grief behind our theology, so to speak. You know, there's a time in the midst of grief where it's not the time to just make theological statements about what's true. We know that's true, and yes, this hurts right here, right now. I know, I know it'll happen on the last day. She's got her theology up tight. She knows the resurrection is coming. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. It's his presence that she needs. It's his presence that Lazarus needs. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? We don't fully understand that. Part of what Jesus is doing here is he's redefining life and death. It's more than the merely physical. He's going to do that further on in John 17 where he's going to say, this is life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing him is our life, restored back into relationship with him. That's where life is. And even the grave cannot take that away. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She still does not believe what he's about to do. She said that she went, she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling, calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus had not come into the village, was still in the place where Martha had met him. And so, the, so when Mary goes out, the others around her think she's going off to the tomb to weep again there, to mourn there by the tomb. And so they follow after her, and they, they, they are following her when she comes to Jesus. And when she comes to Jesus, she fell at his feet, in verse 32, saying to him the same thing, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know about you. I've been there. I've been there. I've been at the point in the midst of despair, in the midst of trouble that we didn't see coming. We got blindsided at first, and we called on the Lord. And we think we call on the Lord, it's, it's, it's going to work out. Things are going to change here. And it did change. It got worse. And we continued to pray, and it got worse still. And we got to the point for some time, I didn't want to pray anymore. Lord, if you had been here, we wouldn't be here. You must not care or you're not going to change this. I guess I'm on my own. That's what I felt like. But in the midst of that, in the midst of even our imperfect faith, there's room for faith to grow. How do we share, share in grief and glory? I said don't hide grief behind theology, even your own where you, where you just think, okay, in the future things are going to be fine, so I just won't get too close to the grief now. Where Jesus joins them and he embraces the grief. Realize as well that God knows our grief. Jesus in the story, he, he says, he sees, he sees Mary weeping. He sees the mourners. He asks, where have you laid him? And he wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And it's profound. His heart is touched with human grief. Why is he grieving? He's grieving the loss of relationship. He's grieving because of their grief. He's grieving because of how death has allowed despair to creep in in the midst of this wonderful relationship that they had. 
He's grieving at the impact that death has upon humanity and in our relationship with God because of sin. Jesus wept. Now when Jesus, when Jesus weeps, the Jews, they, the others around, they say, look how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I said, God knows your grief. I said that Jesus' heart is touched with our grief. I remember hearing years ago, a man put his arm around another guy in the midst of a terrible loss. He just lost his son. One of the hardest things that a parent can go through is the loss of their own child, adult or, or, or younger. It isn't supposed to happen that way. It isn't supposed to happen in that order. And this, and this other man, he put his arm around him. He said, God knows what it's like to lose a boy. That was profound, and it was simple. God knows the loss of relationship pulled apart, of the separation of death. He has experienced that in his innermost being between father and son. God knows what it's like. God in Jesus knows what it's like to stand at the tomb of a friend, a dear friend of someone you love. His heart is touched with our grief. God knows what it's like, parents of adult kids. God knows what it's like to have a wandering child that you're concerned for, that you're grieving over. God knows what it's like to have a prodigal. He's had us. He knows that hurt. He knows that concern. He knows that worry. Where we are, God has been there. The question is asked, Lord, if you had been here. But for any of our circumstances, let's turn this history around a little bit. For any of our circumstances, Jesus has already been there. He's already tasted this for us. He knows what it is that our feeling. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't deny our grief. He doesn't say you shouldn't feel that way because don't you know? Because he knows and he acts in us as well as through us in the midst of this. He gives room for faith to grow. He, he interacts with Martha. He doesn't say much to Mary. Mary is just broken down. Mary seems to be of a, of a different personality makeup. And so he meets each of these ladies differently where they are. And when he comes to Mary, it's not a time to give Mary more truth. It's not a time to be teaching Mary. The teacher is here. He's asking for you, but he hasn't come to teach you. Not today, Mary. He's come to be with you, and he's come to show you something of himself. The cynics are there, and it's not time to answer them either. It's not time for apologetics. It's not time to debate. Not here, not now. They say, couldn't he, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Well, we can answer that today. Maybe they don't have an answer because they're asking the wrong question. Is it true that God's main purpose is to keep humanity from dying? Is that God's purpose for us? Because if it is, he's not doing so well. What if that is not God's purpose? What if humanity is not dying or in danger of dying? What if humanity is already dead? Isn't that what Scripture says? 
In fact, in the garden where death occurs and separation between God and humanity, God actually takes action that they won't continue to live physically because living physically is not the goal. God separates them from that tree of life in the midst of the garden because he will not allow them to continue into eternity in this broken, fallen state. This must be redeemed. This must be changed. Our physical life is actually not God's first priority. Our spiritual life with him forever is his ultimate priority. Humanity is already dead. And the purposes of God which we can trust is he has come to give us life. The wrong question was, can he keep from dying? Men are already dead. The right question is, can he bring us back to life again? And here's where we'll begin to see the glory of God. We can trust God's purposes. We can share in grief because there is glory coming. God is at work. We can follow Jesus even towards death and into new life. Look at verse 38. Jesus was deeply moved. The, the Greek translation there, that deeply moved, he bristled in spirit. It's, it's like he is, he is moved to the deepest level, but also it's like he's raised up. He's, he, there's turmoil inside, and mingled in with the grief, there's also a bit, of, a bit of anger, anger at what death has done. And there's a raising up within. There's a, the hair standing up on the back, on his back. He's ready to attack death itself. That's what's going on here. Came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay, lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I love the King James here. Lord, he stinketh. I've said that a lot in church life. In the midst of my prayers, Lord, he stinketh. Maybe it was about me, but there it is. But what's going on here? He's been, he's been in the tomb. The, the, the proper Jewish burial procedure was you put them in the tomb and you leave the body there to decay for a year or more. And then you would come back and you would gather up, a family member would gather up the bones and put them into the smaller ossuary called a bone box. And those would be preserved with the rest of the, of the family remains there in the family tomb. But you wouldn't disturb the tomb in the meantime when the decay process, what a horrible, ugly thing to expose of somebody that you loved. I mean, have you ever seen a mummy? Maybe in a museum or a picture, you've seen a mummy. I tell you, King Tut is just not looking his best, right? Imagine how, how, how the young king would feel about being exposed like that for everybody to see. You ladies don't want to be seen before your hair is done, before your makeup is set. Can you imagine how King Tut really feels about all this? Martha does not want her beloved brother to now, the last memory everybody has is the wretched stench of his decaying corpse. And yet, for life to come, death must be exposed. The tomb must be opened. The stone must be rolled away. And in that process, if I can compare this to the Christian life, we don't want things to be exposed. We want new life. We, don't, we want victory, but we don't want what's there to be exposed. 
for the light of the gospel to shine upon it so that our life can actually be transformed. So we want to hide. And as we hide in the dark and keep the covers pulled over, what remains has a hidden place to grow. He says, no, 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 go ahead. We're not afraid of the smell here because something far more glorious is about to happen, and that's going to be the thing. And so they open the tomb, and then Jesus says, Lazarus, he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. One of our men in our, in our, in our Monday morning study said he had to limit it to Lazarus here, oh, uh, uh, otherwise every grave in the cemetery would have opened, and we're not ready for that yet. So he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens next is, is wonderful. Lazarus comes kind of waddling, really, kind of one of those penguin things out of the tomb. He's been wrapped from head to toe. And, and the wrapping was, as decomposition happens, if I could get gross for a minute, they want to keep the bones all together in a normal body shape. And that's what the wrapping is all about, and, and wrapping with the spices and stuff that are going to keep the odors down while the process continues. And so he's all wrapped up fairly tight. He's able to walk a little bit, but not so much. And so Lazarus comes on out of the tomb. He's been in there four days, right? Are those wrappings nice and clean? No, no, they're not. No, they're not. It's, he comes on out. Well, goodness, wonderful, great service. Let's go to somebody's place for dinner. Here comes Lazarus, you know, going on to dinner. Wouldn't that be nice? Have the Lazarus sit down with you at Sunday dinner after, after all this. What, imagine the stories you could tell, right? But couldn't he change first? Would that be all right? What does Jesus say here? I love this line. I think here in the ESV, he says, it says, unbind him and let him go. Again, I like the King James, the New King James. It says, loose him and let him go. I love that. Loose him and let him go. He gives that instruction. Jesus could have done it himself. Jesus could have just waved his arm and the wrappings could have just fallen off. But he gives that to us. He says, now you guys, unbind him. You guys remove the grave clothes. Why? Wasn't, wasn't Lazarus properly dressed? Wasn't he outfitted suitably for his occasion? I mean, he's been dead. He's been in the tomb. He's wearing exactly what he ought to be wearing. Then, not now. Is there something about life here? Is there something about old life and new life, that which perfectly fit, and we don't spend our time as a church trying to clean up the behavior of everybody out there around us who knows nothing of Jesus? That is, not, that is not our goal for them. We're not, our goal is not to help them better manage their sin. Our goal is to show them Jesus who can give them life. And that's where the old doesn't fit anymore. When they have been made new, when they have been born again, once in darkness but now in light, walk as children of light. Ephesians 2 says that we were once dead in trespasses and sin, walking according to the ways of this world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, because that's who we served. That's who we followed. That's what would be expected. But God, in his riches of his mercy, while we were dead in sin, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's Ephesians 2. We were dead and we've been made alive. And the second half of Ephesians is calling us to live in the new reality that now fits. And that's what he says when he says, take off the grave clothes. It's time to live new. The grave clothes fit back there. They don't fit. They're not appropriate. It's not suitable any longer. 
But he says, you guys loose him and let him go. Did you catch that? He doesn't tell Lazarus, time to change your clothes. He says, you, you, you help him. Loose him and let him go. Let him go. Let him live. I love that opportunity there. Don't fence him in. Don't hedge him in. Don't give him all the rules about what he now can do. Let him live. Loose him from the bindings of the past and let him go. And that takes others. That's my point. You heard us talk about a lot about growing together with other growing believers. He needed others to loose him. He needed others to help him remove the old so that he could live new. And so do we. If he, or Hebrews chapter 10 says to provoke one another, to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Be a catalyst in the lives of one another. Those who run best are running well with others who run well. The, that we grow best when we are growing together with other growing believers. We serve better when we are serving in the company of others who are challenging us and encouraging us. That's what a good coach does on any kind of a sports team, right? They encourage and they challenge and you stretch a little farther because of it. And so, the writer of Hebrews tells, tells, tells the church to provoke one another, to stir one another in love and good deeds, not neglecting the gathering of yourselves together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We live best by living together, living for one another, helping what a new life takes help from others. Lastly, I want to point out that new life begins with believing. How does this happen? There is a picture of new life here that is being written not merely for the people of this event, certainly, because it's written after that, not even for the church of the first century, but for us as well. And where does this new life, this Lazarus life, this coming out of death into new life so that others can loose him and let him go, where does that come from? Well, others around saw it, verse 45, and many who had come and seen, they believed in him. They believed in Jesus. What did they believe in Jesus? Well, there were others who went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There's two responses. Wow, look what Jesus has done. There's another response that says, you guys need to know, you guys need to hear about what this Jesus did now. One is, one is praise and worship, adoration. The other is fear and scheming and rejection. And so they're talking about this among themselves. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Look what he's doing now. The whole world's going to follow him. And, and, and John says this, that Caiaphas, he records the words of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year in verse 49. And Caiaphas said, you know nothing at all. You guys, you guys are missing the picture here. Don't you understand this? It's better for one, it's better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Well, that's a gospel statement. It is far better that one man should die than that the whole nation should perish. And John's going to expand it beyond that. But Caiaphas doesn't know what he's saying. Thomas didn't know what she was saying. Mar M M Martha didn't quite realize she was saying. Caiaphas certainly has no idea what he was saying. But he prophesies because it says he's the high priest, high priest that year, and God is speaking through him. 
and that he was prophesying that Jesus would die for the nation, and John adds, not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So that day, they made plans to put him to death. Their plans to put him to death to try to put a stop to this all was God's plan that Jesus would die, that he would give us life. Now let me wrap it together if I can. There will be plenty of times in life where we will be asking the question, where is Jesus? Why didn't he show up in the midst of my whatever is going on? Where is Jesus? And we see this story in John chapter 11, and we realize, okay, we can trust God's purposes. We can step into in the midst of grief. Grief will be there, but there is hope in the midst of grief that even in death, God gives new life, and yet here we are still. And this passage certainly tells us, John 11, a Lazarus example, certainly tells us that, yes, God will raise, God raised Lazarus from the death, death, and that proves that God is going to also this, this would encourage the disciples that God would also raise Jesus from the dead. But that's not why John wrote it. John wrote it long after that. John wrote it in, towards the end of the first century when the church is facing trouble. When the church is facing persecution. And when the church, like you in the midst of some of your trouble, is calling out to God. Saying, look what's going on. Look what it's happening. We are being pressed. We are near death. Won't you come quickly and they're waiting and they're waiting and it could seem to some that Jesus doesn't come that's the setting now have you felt that sometimes in the midst of your stuff Jesus where are you or in the midst of all that's going on in this broken world Jesus where are you and this chapter tells us that Jesus is coming. And Jesus will bring life out of death, and he will work far beyond what we can ask or even imagine. But in the midst of our asking, Jesus, where are you? In the midst of our thinking, Lord, if you had only been here, remember this. Jesus is coming, and Jesus will change everything. He will make all that's wrong right. And it will be glory when he does that will have been worth waiting the extra two days for. Let's pray. Father, I know that in the midst, in this room right now, there are hurts. We need to be reminded of, of what you did in the life of, of Martha and Mary as well as Lazarus, who really slept through most of it. But, Father, we need to know that you met them there in Jesus because we, we need you to meet us. And, Father, while we wait, there are all kinds of doubts that echo around. There are urgent needs in this room. And the enemy would whisper into our ears that you're too busy, you can't do anything, or you simply don't care. Father, we know that your heart is touched with our grief. We know that you have been there before us, and you are here in it with us. Father, give us that confidence in you, a confidence that can trust your purposes even in the midst of trouble, a confidence in you, a faith in you that can look through grief, not ignoring it, but look through grief to glory, a trust in you that will 
Help us then, Lord, to open up. Whether it's even exposing that within ourselves that is rotting, that we might see your transforming work there. That you would help us, Father, to give ourselves in ways that would loose others and let them live. Father, would you do that? Even out of our offering that we received this morning. Lord, out of the generous offering given by the, Sunday, by, by, by the VBC this last week, Father, would you use this which is given to you, use it for your glory to show life in Jesus. In his name, amen.